Suddenly, there was one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, when we think of Daniel, the book of Daniel, we normally think of what? Daniel in the lion's den, which is a good story. This is true. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew children that would not bend and and, uh, worship the idol. But there is also much prophecy in Daniel. And in Daniel 7, we read about a vision that Daniel has. He has a vision from God of the image of a human being who rides the clouds. A man riding the clouds. This figure is described as being worshipped. This cloud man is given dominion. He is given glory. He is given a kingdom. And people from every nation and language serve him. He's a man. But riding in the clouds in the Old Testament is considered to be a sign of deity. So if you're an Old Testament Hebrew man with this vision, it has to be troubling. Is this figure a man or is he God? Now there are several things in this vision which were probably troubling and we find that Daniel is deeply distressed because of this vision. And at one point, he writes he has to go to bed for several days because he is so distressed and does not understand what God is showing him. And I know many of us probably feel that way too. And while there is much about the Bible that is hard for us to understand, the New Testament helps us to understand this God-man who rides in the clouds. And today we are going to look at Luke's gospel to understand more about this God-man who rides in the clouds. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we are going to start in verse 26. Now as you're turning there to give a little context to this passage, the angel Gabriel has come and predicted the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's parents were already old and aged and barren, and so this was a miraculous event that they were going to have a child in their old, advanced years. And then we pick up the text in verse 26 to read of an even more miraculous birth. In the sixth month, and this sixth month is the sixth month of Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for who who would be called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed the Lord, that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth on our heart this morning. Father, we praise you for your word. God, illuminate it to us now. Help us to understand. Guide my tongue, guard ears. Father, your will be done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we pick up our text, Zechariah, the Gabriel's already announced to Zechariah that his aging wife would bear a son and his name would be John and that he would prepare the way of the Lord. A barren woman in advanced ears conceiving was a miraculous event. And now we read of an even more miraculous conception, one with no earthly father. We find the same angel that went to Zechariah now going to an engaged Jewish teenage girl and telling her that she is favored by God. And Mary is troubled by the statement. I think she would be troubled just the fact that an angel is coming to her, but we also know that, or or read by one commentator, that she is surprised because it's not customary for an angel to greet a woman, and she wonders, what kind of greeting could this be? Mary is called a favored woman. She is called blessed by God. There is a high privilege of being the mother of Christ, the eternal word. Now, we don't go as far as our Roman Catholic friends down the street, and deify Mary. We do not pray to her. We do not post images of her all around. Yet we should not overlook the fact that the Scriptures say she is favored. Mary will carry the preexistent word and deliver him, and she will bear the title Mother of God. And Gabriel informs Mary that she will have a son and gives, him a, gives her a five-fold description of the, this baby. He will be great. He will be the son of the Most High. He will have the throne of David. He will be over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. And Mary asks, how can this be? I've never had relations with a man. And the Holy Spirit says to her, or Gabriel says to her, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God will overshadow you. Your child will be born holy, that is, without sin. There is nothing impossible for, with God. 
you will conceive by his power. This conception is the work of God. J.C. Ryle wrote that this is the most marvelous event that ever happened to the world. He says that by one woman, sin and death were brought into the world in the beginning, in Genesis 3. And by the childbearing of one woman, life and immortality were brought to light when Christ was born. Through this, this, this announcement by an angel, we see that God is about to break into human history. God is becoming flesh in the form of a man, born of a woman at the right time, according to the plan of God. And Mary responds that she's the Lord's servant. May everything happen the way that you've, you've told me. And then she rushes off to see her relative Elizabeth. And we, we read that Elizabeth is filled with God's Spirit, that John the Baptist leaps in her womb at, at, at the coming of Christ. It's often been said that John the Baptist is the first to recognize and worship Jesus in the flesh. Mary exclaims, blessed are you among women and calls her the mother of her Lord. This is nothing less than a declaration that the baby this virgin carried is the long-awaited Messiah. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation is that God came to earth in human flesh. Now what I want you to see from this text, this is a little bit different sermon than maybe you're used to, in that we're not going to walk through the text verse by verse like we normally do, but are going to draw from the text the doctrine or the theology that we need to know about the God-man today. But before we do that, what I want you to notice from this text is that this is not a generic story. This is not some sort of tall tale like Babe the Big Blue Ox. This is not a fantasy. This is not the grim fairy tales or King Arthur, but this is a true story with real historical people at a real historical place at a real historical time. In years, in the recent years, people have attempted to undermine the virgin conception. Thomas Jefferson believed that the virgin conception is merely superstitious myth. Harry Emerson Fosdick said that no intelligent minister can believe the virgin birth. Robert Funk of the so-called Jesus Seminar argued that the virgin birth belittles women. And our most recent knucklehead, Rob Bell, states that the virgin birth is unimportant to Christianity. If we dig up DNA proof tomorrow that Jesus had an earthly father named Larry, the message of Christianity does not change, end quote. Do you believe these men this morning? Is the virgin birth optional for a Christian? Do you believe that the virgin birth is a superstitious add-on from a later date, as though there was, a, there was a guy in Nazareth named Jesus, and he was a good man, he was a good prophet, he was nice to people, and he was killed, and then later on people added this story to it. They tacked it on the beginning. Friends, I will argue this morning that all true Christians must believe the virgin birth, for the Bible teaches the virgin birth. Furthermore, I will argue that you must believe the virgin birth because the very gospel is at stake. No virgin birth, no gospel. 
Let's look at a few things in this text to point to its historicity. First, we see that there is a town in Galilee called Nazareth where Mary lives. And she's engaged to a man named Joseph of the line of David. We have a place, an actual place, and we have actual people. Then she goes to the hill country of Judah where she will find a woman named Elizabeth who is married to a man named Zechariah. And this is all during the days of Herod of Judah when Quirinius was governor of Syria, when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. We see here that Luke is not just giving us some bland fairy tale with, with Jack and Jill, but that we have actual people who live in actual places at an actual time when this guy was in charge of this place, when this guy was in charge of this place, and when this guy was in charge of this place. Remember that Luke is written only a few decades after the time of Jesus. And so if he was coming up with some baloney as this circulates around the Mediterranean, people would have called him on it. These are all historical tidbits, not vague generalities. In other words, if I tell you about a man named Lonnie Ballou who lived west of Tallapoosa in Harrelson County, Several decades ago, if you want to find out if that's true or not, you can go to Harrelson County and find out that my great-grandfather actually existed. People still around that know this. That's what we hear Paul saying when he says, Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers. Some have fallen asleep, but many are alive. He's saying, go, go talk to these people. And in Luke's day, they could have went and talked to them as well. Set time, a set place, real people, friends, this is history. Secondly, some in church history have denied that Jesus became man, but that God just appeared to be man. Coming from a Greek belief that spirit is good and, and body is bad, but I want you to notice the biology in this text, that this was not God appearing as man, but this was God becoming man. The angel says, you will conceive and bear a son. And Mary says, how is that possible? Because I have not had relations with a man. The power of God will overshadow you, that is, overshadow your body. Consider your cousin Elizabeth. She has conceived, even though she is old. Your child will be blessed, and she is called the mother of our Lord. The Word was made flesh. God became Man. He did not just appear. And if he did just appear as a man, then the whole storyline we have here with Mary is completely irrelevant. But it's not. It's there. It's in God breathed scripture. Jesus had an earthly mother. He was born of a woman, Paul tells us in Galatians, at the appropriate time. Friends, when you deny the divinity of Jesus, you deny the gospel. And when you deny the humanity, of Jesus, you deny the gospel because Jesus is truly man. Now, I want us to think a bit about the theology behind this idea of Jesus being man. And when thinking about the virgin conception, I recalled a, a seminary lecture that I had from one of my professors, Dr. Owen Strand, and he made five statements 
And those five statements are going to be our main heads in this next portion that I'm going to unpack a little bit. Five elements of the gospel that the virgin conception teaches the church is first, the virgin conception insists that man is unable to save himself. The virgin conception insists is an affirmation of humanity. Third, the virgin conception is a sign of new beginning. Fourth, the virgin conception demonstrates the sovereignty of God. And five, the virgin conception points to the unique nature of Christ. First, the virgin conception insists that man is unable to save himself. Friends, we read in Genesis 3 that all that because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's first sin, sin entered the world. And we read in other places in Scripture that because of that first sin, we all inherit a sin nature. Because humanity sinned, it was necessary that the penalty of sin be paid for by man. We can't sacrifice an angel and pay for man's sin. Our substitute, our representative, had to be man, but because of our fallen nature, we could not save ourselves. We were doomed. None of us were good. We've all gone our own way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The virgin conception teaches us that humanity on itself, by itself, could not save itself, but that God must do it for us. The substitute must be sinless. Because if a sinner forfeits his own life, it does nothing for another's debt. And this passage in Luke tells us that Jesus would be holy. It's not just that Jesus did not sin, but that Jesus could not sin. And being holy and being man means that he could serve as our substitute. God had to intervene because we could not save ourselves. Second, the virgin conception is an affirmation of humanity. Jesus took on a human body. He came to earth in the form of man. He was not gender neutral. He was a first century Jewish man born in Bethlehem, the second Adam. The first Adam failed. Jesus is the second and greater and faithful Adam. Christ is true humanity. What humanity was intended to be faithful. Christ's humanity was not fallen like ours. He walked the earth, he ate, he drank, he slept, all while remaining fully God. But he experienced anything an unfallen man would experience. He worked as a carpenter. He got sweaty. He got dirty. He needed to take a bath. He ate. He drank. He got tired and he slept. He got thirsty. The virgin conception is an affirmation of humanity. And it is essential that Christ would be man to redeem fallen man. Third, the virgin conception is a sign of new beginning. Of all the miraculous things we read in the Old Testament, God had never done anything quite like this. A virgin had never conceived. God had never taken human flesh and walked among us. Remember last week we read the text, the, the Greek word which means pitched his tent. God had never come to earth and pitched his tent among us. Jeremiah tells us that there is coming a new covenant not like the one made with Israel. In the book of Hebrews we read that the new covenant has rendered the old obsolete. And the virgin conception points to a new beginning in which all true sons of Abraham are those united with Christ, the body of believers, new humanity. 
Fourth, the virgin conception exhibits the sovereignty of God. Who could come up with a plan like this but God? John 1.13 reminds us that all Christians are born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of who? Of God. No human being came up with this plan. No man willed the virgin birth to happen. Friends, this story that we just read is an act of God. Sovereign, creator, redeeming God. Ephesians 1, 3-14 that we went through a few months ago says that God chose the church before the foundation of the world. God predestined us to be adopted as His children. God poured out His grace according to His will. God brought everything together according to His perfect plan and God seals us with His Holy Spirit. And now we read that God chose a young girl named Mary to carry Christ and that His power would overshadow her. It's not the will of man. This is the act of a sovereign God who created the universe. The creator of the universe is the only one that could cause a virgin to conceive. Only God could plan such a plan of salvation. And the virgin birth points to an all-sovereign, directing, creating, redeeming God. Fifth, the virgin conception points to the unique nature of Christ. In one sense, he is like us. In another sense, he is unlike us. He is fully man, but he has not fallen humanity. He is fully man, but he's also fully God. He's not one or the other. He's both. He doesn't change. He's not God one day and man the next. He is at all times both fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. And I know from my math teachers in the room that is horrible math, but it is theologically correct. He is both like us and unlike us. He is not a, here's your 75 cent theological word of the day, he is not a tertium quid. He is not a third thing. If we were putting things in the category, it is not as though there is God category, man category, and then the Jesus category. He is not a third thing, but he is both fully God and fully man. He is from eternity past. He is not adopted. Christ took on himself our humanity. It is not as though a guy named Jesus in Nazareth was really good and God said, I like him, I'm going to make him divine. But he was always God from eternity past. And the eternal word became flesh, the second member of the Trinity. God the Son took on himself humanity while maintaining every single bit of his divinity. And that is why every single week I say that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. It is essential to Christianity. Now, how should we live in light of this glorious truth? How should we be encouraged this Advent season? You know, we used to have a guy here that would say to me from a, on occasion, my wife wants to know when she's going to be encouraged by one of your sermons. And I want to respond, if you're not encouraged by the gospel, friend, I got nothing for you. I think the bookstore downtown might have Joel Olstein, but all I got is the gospel. And friends, this virgin birth should encourage you. It should be the most encouraging thing you hear all day, week, month, or year. And the first thing I want to lay before you 
is that, Christian, you must be encouraged by the virgin conception because you have a divine Savior who humbled himself to take on humanity. Philippians 2.7 reminds us that Jesus assumed the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he came as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for his bride. Friends, God became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. What more encouragement do you need? He humbled himself, yet remained God. The very word, the one through all the universe was created, as we read last week. There is not one thing created apart from him, became man, became like us, and dwelt among us. He laid aside his divine majesty and assumed our nature. The sovereign became a servant for you. While maintaining all of his divinity. It's been said it's like as though a king in his castle up on the hill decided he wanted to walk among his people and put on the clothes of a beggar, and dirtied his face, and humbled himself to put on that, and walked among his people. But he still remained every single bit king. And if he were to throw off those beggar's robes and stand up among his people and say, I'm your king, they would have fell on their face. Louis Burkhoff wrote, the essential and central element in the state of humiliation is found in the fact that he who was Lord of all the earth, the supreme lawgiver, placed himself under the law in order to discharge its federal and penal obligations on behalf of his people. Friend, that, that must encourage you if you are in Christ today. And as the early church father Gregory said, what he did not assume, he did not redeem. So second, Christian, you must be encouraged by the virgin conception because you have a human substitute. A substitute that was fully man, sinless man. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died as a man in the place of sinners that they might be reconciled to God. My sins, your sins, if you're in Christ, were nailed to the cross with Jesus. He, as your substitute, paid the debt we owe. It helps to understand the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, uh, to pay for a, a man's sin, a man would bring an unblemished animal to the door of the sanctuary. And in that man's sin would be transferred to the animal, his guilt, to this unblemished animal. He would lay his hand on it in solidarity with the animal, saying, I am guilty. And then that animal would be slaughtered on account of his sin. That's how seriously, friends, that God takes sin. The things that we laugh about, the things that we jest about, the things that we excuse, bring death. God is not merely annoyed by sin, but it brings his righteous wrath. If God simply overlooked our sin, friends, we would not have a good God. 
any more than we would have a good judge who turned rapist back out into the town. But our God is a good God, who is not merely annoyed by sin, who does not tell our evil. And in the atonement, we find three things. When this animal was sacrificed, God's wrath against sin was satisfied, sin was cleansed, and fellowship was restored. God's wrath was satisfied, sin was cleansed, and God's and fellowship was restored. However, these Old Testament sacrifices do not ultimately save. They're temporary. All of these sacrifices point to the greater sacrifice when God's Son, the perfect, unblemished Lamb, would be nailed to a cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He came to earth and walked the life that we could not walk, and was crucified for the sins of his own. There is no other way. You can never be good enough. This week we had some ladies served at a soup kitchen, and that is great, and that is wonderful, and that's what Christians should do. But you can serve at all the soup kitchens from now to the day of your death, and you will never cleanse your sin. You can never work at it. You can never be good enough to save your sin. It took the unblemished lamb of God. And friends, either Christ has drank the cup of wrath that you have rightly built up for yourself, or you will drink it in eternity. Because God is just, and his sin must be punished. And he will not just turn a blind eye. He is not merely annoyed by it, despite what the culture tells you. Sin is not just something icky, but it entails and incurs the righteous wrath of a holy God. If you do not accept the terms of peace that God extends, you cannot set your own. These are non-negotiable terms. God will not come to the negotiating table with you. Either you turn to Christ and repent and believe the gospel, or you have a cup of wrath awaiting you in eternity. And I encourage you, friends, because I love you, make terms, make peace with God today. Repent and believe the gospel. Third, you must be encouraged by the virgin conception because you have a human sympathizer. Hebrews 4.15 states that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Sometimes people wrongly interpret this verse to mean that Jesus struggled with internal desire with sin. Friends, that is not the case. People will say things like, well, I struggle with cheating and stealing, so did Jesus. I struggled with same-sex attraction, so, so does Jesus. I struggle with pornography, so Jesus must have struggled with pornography. Friends, no. No, a thousand times, no. That is a not one bit encouraging. It might feel encouraging in the moment when you're feeling guilty for whatever you just did, but in the long run, it is damning. It is damning. Jesus was and is holy. He is without sin. And that is encouraging. That our, that our, that our substitute is without sin. He is true humanity. We are fallen humanity. I am fallen humanity. Jesus is true humanity. He is like us, but he is unlike us. And so his temptation is unlike us. 
Jesus was not internally tempted towards murder, gender dysphoria, pedophilia. Anything you can come up with did not come from his heart. We learn in the Gospels that even to desire to sin is sin itself. If I see a woman and lust after her, I am guilty. If I get mad at Alan McDonald and am angry towards him, I am guilty of murder. If Jesus looked on a woman with lust, he is guilty. Yet he did not do those things because he is holy. Jesus experienced external temptation, but that temptation never had a landing pad in his heart. In the same way an unbeatable army experiences the force of an attacking army, Jesus experienced the force of external temptation, yet he was completely holy in every thought, deed, and action. Friends, you do not want a God that struggles and has an inclination towards sin. And thankfully, the Bible does not teach us that he did. The Bible stresses that Jesus is holy. He is righteous. He is sinless. And in this passage of Hebrews, that is encouraging for us because we do not serve a Lord who looks down upon earth from heaven and does not know what it means to walk among us. He has pitched his tent with us. He has worked. He has gotten tired. He has been hungry. The incarnation means that God knows what it means to live in a sinful world. And the incarnation means that Christ understands experientially the external factors that pull on us. But in his humanity, Christ was perfect and faithful in every thought, deed, and action. And so could be our substitute. Divinity came to humanity, and he sympathizes with us. Being truly man, our Lord knows what it's like to walk on this earth forth. Christian, you must be encouraged by the virgin conception because you have a human advocate. After the resurrection, Jesus did not merely arise in a spiritual sense, but he walked out of the grave physical. We read in John's gospel that he sat on the beach and ate fish. They came and felt the scars in his hand and in his side. He has a physical body, and when he ascended to the Father, he ascended in a human physical body. And John tells us that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Paul writes, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5. So friends, be encouraged that as a Christian, there is a man who is fully God and fully man in heaven right now in bodily form that intercedes for you. I don't remember which one of the Puritans it was, and and it's not in my notes, but he said, how bold would I be if I could hear Jesus praying and interceding for me in the next room, and yet he is praying and interceding for me in heaven. This Advent, friends, understand that the virgin conception identifies Christ as the Messiah. Yet an earthly mother, which makes clear that he is indeed human, and his preexistence as the eternal word makes clear that he is indeed divine. Foundational for us to know Jesus. He is fully man. He is fully divine. The truth that the preexistent Son of God took on human flesh is a miracle that surpasses our limited understanding. Sitting and contemplating on an eternal God becoming man 
surpasses our finite understanding, but the scripture is clear and it is true that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal son assumed humanity. The doctrine of the virgin conception is the doctrine that connects Jesus' divine nature with his humanity. And it is crucial for Christianity. All true believers affirm this doctrine. The earliest creeds affirm this doctrine. If you do not have a fully divine, fully human Jesus, friends, you do not have the Jesus of the Bible. If you elevate Jesus' divinity so that it swallows up his humanity, you do not have the Jesus of the Bible. If you elevate his humanity and disregard his divinity, you do not have the Jesus of the Bible, for he is both truly 100% God, 100% man. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And just as God's people awaited Christ's first advent, we now await his second. We must patiently wait, watch, pray for Christ, the God-man's second return. The New Testament tells us that he will return in the clouds of glory. The God-man, the one who is fully God and fully man, riding on the clouds of glory, and he will gather together his faithful. He will gather his bride. Trust in that promise today. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your promises. God, thank you for your fulfillment, your sovereignty. Father, impress upon us these truths today. For every Christian here, God, may we stand in awe. And may we be encouraged by what you have done. And for those who hear my voice who have not trusted in the Jesus of the Bible, but trust in a Jesus of their own making. God, I pray that you would convict their hearts and they would repent and believe for the first time the true Jesus. All for your glory alone. And in his name we pray, amen.